Hi everyone and welcome to the Oplane podcast where we talk with the movers and shakers that are redefining the future of commercial aviation. As usual, before we start, let me remind you once more that all previous episodes of this podcast, as well as many other aviation stories, are available on the Oplane website. That's allplane.tv, A-L-L-P-L-A-N-E dot TV. So now let's go to today's episode, because we combine two of my favorite topics, seaplanes and electric aircraft, because our guest is none other than George Alafinov, founder of Jekta, a startup based in Switzerland that is developing an all-electric battery-powered seaplane for regional air transport. The Jekta seaplane is still a few years from being operational, but it has already started to get the attention of some operators. For example, Jekta recently got a pre-order for 50 aircraft from India, a country that is likely to see its regional air transport market develop significantly over the coming years. With George, we talk about the pros and cons of seaplane operations, about his previous experience as a seaplane designer, and also why this type of aircraft fell out of fashion with the advent of the jet era, and why now it's time for for a comeback, but with new clean technologies that bring also reduction of operational costs. Last but not least, we also talk about Jekta's Swiss home and how this country in the middle of Europe is becoming a magnet for clean aviation innovators. So tune in for our far-ranging conversation with George Alafinov, founder of Jekta. Hi George, how are you? Hi Mikkel, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, thanks so much for accepting to be here on the podcast talking about your very interesting project, an all-electric seaplane. I don't know if I should call it a seaplane or an amphibious plane. I'm, I'm not too familiar with the nuances between the two terms. Yes, uh, I think this particular aircraft, it's correct to call an amphibious aircraft. Very simple. A seaplane is only uh, intended to be used on the water and water-to-water -water operations. And uh, amphibious aircraft is designed to be uh, operated at different uh, uh, possibilities, whether it's a water-to-water, land-to-water, or land-to-land. -land. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Basically, first of all, I, I, I would like to ask you to introduce yourself. Uh, we're going to then talk about your project, Jekta. As I mentioned, it's an all-electric amphibious aircraft for 19 passengers. You are developing this in, in Switzerland at the moment, but with global ambitions because the market for this type of planes is, is global. And actually, I think you recently got your first order or pre-order, I don't know how to call it, but uh, from India. Yes, thank you very much. Um, I'd like to start with, with correcting. The first um, customer for our aircraft is actually in a, a company that is a Swedish Dubai company. But you are correct in assessing that uh, they are planning to use this aircraft in India. So my name is George Alafinov or Georgi Alafinov. Uh, I'm the chief executive officer and co-founder of Jekta Switzerland. Our team, uh, driven by my father and our chief designer, has been building amphibious aircraft for the last 20 years. And besides many other experimental aircraft, we have successfully designed, certified and manufactured two amphibious airplanes. Uh, a two-seater ultralight amphibious aircraft and an eight-seater twin-engine amphibious aircraft, both of the flying boat design. Interesting. And it was due, yes, and um, it was during a sales pitch in India in, I think it was 2017 or 2018, uh, for the eight-seater aircraft, we came to a realization that uh, a bigger aircraft is uh, required to serve the needs of both the existing and the emerging markets. And one of such markets is, uh, I mean, of course, uh, India. So we went to the drawing board and uh, started outlining the future 19-seat 
amphibian aircraft. Of course, at the time, the intention was to design an aircraft using conventional uh, powertrain, a turboprop engine. The best possible engine out there was uh, the famous Pratt & Whitney 56. A very good uh, legacy engine. However, albeit uh, many modernizations over the last 60 years, this engine is still thirsty, loud, expensive, and in some ways simply outdated, even though it's probably the best conventional engine out there. Therefore, and simply for research purposes, we have started to look into the possibility of uh, electrifying the 19-seat aircraft. And uh, to our surprise, we have come to several conclusions. Which ones? Well, A, that given the characteristics of the regional travel, i.e. the regional mobility, um, be it to land-to-land, water-to-land, or water-to-water, with the present-day technology, it's already possible to design a fully electric, regional amphibious aircraft with uh, multiple operational parameters that can serve the majority of regional land and water routes and be that electrification provides a direct economic benefit to our customers, the regional operators, uh, by reducing the operating and maintenance costs. And last but not least, uh, through flying boat design and the use of modern composite materials, we're able to provide an aircraft that can be uh, effectively used on both land and water without need for any additional parts or additional maintenance. And uh, that's how the Phase 100 project was born. Mm -hmm. I've got a few questions here, having reached this point. Um, Some of them are about the actual seaplane or amphibious aspect of of the project. And some others are about the electric side of things. So let's start by the amphibious part. Uh, seaplanes or amphibious planes were very, very popular in the early years of aviation up until the Second World War. Uh, they were even like the mainstream way for people to travel in many parts of the world. But then they fell out of fashion. And since then, they kind of remain sort of a very, very small niche. I mean, there are a few operators out there, but but not not so many, not so many aircraft. What is changing now that you think it's going to make it a much more attractive proposition for operators out there? And the second question connected to that is on, on the, let's say, the electric technology. One of the main issues is range. So what is the, what is the range of your aircraft and how you plan to solve this with the energy density of, of the batteries? We have seen a few announcements lately about more performing batteries and all that, but it seems to be a, a big uh, hurdle at the moment for entrepreneurs that are trying to electrify aviation. Well, you're very correct in terms of history of seaplanes. Seaplanes uh, um, have been around since the early 20th century. Um, they were very popular at the time, particularly in the first few decades, uh, because they were able to access remote areas and provide transportation to locations that were not easily accessible by land. But more importantly, because the developed world, and we were talking about Europe and the United States of America, uh, had at that time uh, yet a lack of uh, airports and airport infrastructure. So there you had international hubs, but you didn't have all those small uh, airports uh, that uh, uh, my colleague from aviation uh, mentioned at your podcast about, I think, 3,000 or 2,300 something airports. Uh, regional airports in, in the United States of America. However, as uh, technology improved and airports became more widespread, seaplanes lost uh, popularity um, due to the fact that uh, they would always required a lot of maintenance. They were made all of metal, and metal and water do not coincide very well. 
Um, they also, uh, land-based aircraft uh, have additional payload because they don't have the reinforced hull. Therefore, the manufacturers were able to provide more payload for those operators. And with the uh, spread of the infrastructure uh, in North America and, and in Europe, the operators started looking into carrying passengers from airport to airports. And therefore, they started building more airports in the vicinity of the city. And not all the cities are based on, on the water, whether it's river or, or lake. And uh, this was one of the initial uh, reasons why the seaplane started to decline. The another one was the fact that uh, after the World War II, and as you know, the biggest seaplane, if I'm correct, was the Spruce Goose, 1944 by Howard Hughes. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was the largest, I think. I'm not sure about the dates. I think it even stretched a bit. 45? After the war, yeah, but around the second half so of the 40s, yes. Something yes, like second that. half of the 40s. Um, and uh, then we, in the 50s, we came into the age of the jet engine and uh, the passengers started looking into uh, flying further, flying faster and flying at higher altitudes. And with the modernization of course of a car industry and the ability to drive cars at the faster speeds to certain locations, the need for seaplanes uh, uh, that are operating short routes have started to decline further because it became a little bit less unfashionable and uh, people started looking more into the jet era. And then since then, over the last 60 years, 70 years, we had this uh, huge boom in, in jet travel. So now we are able to fly from, from London to Australia or to Argentina using jet engines. However, with the, with the new increased interest in uh, regional and urban mobility, us and a lot of other uh, manufacturers start looking into what the possibilities for water possibilities for water operations can provide for the regional mobility. And therefore, in recent years, there has been a renewed interest in seaplanes, ex exactly for the particular particular for the ability to access remote or island locations or difficult or impossible to reach destinations. And uh, with advances in technology, we see seaplanes that can become more efficient, reliable, and safe, and can be used for a wider range of uh, applications. And to answer your second part of, of the question about the battery density and uh, range, we have a list of all operators around the world. There's about 350 companies. Where they're ranging between Transmaldivian Airlines that has about 60 aircraft to many operators that have uh, one or one aircraft. Sorry, it's 350 yeah. operators of, of uh, seaplanes, of amphibious aircraft seaplanes. in the yes. world. Uh -huh. Yes, mm -hmm. this is based on the list that we have. Okay. The average distance traveled for that operator is 84 kilometers. Okay. So we're talking about really short range regional uh, routes. And therefore, when we're talking about the present possibility for uh, battery density, and I think we're ready at 250 watts an hour, there is expectation at 300 watts an hour at the end of this year. And as you know, there was uh, the biggest uh, battery manufacturer in the world. Uh, yeah, Chinese. presented, I think, yeah. last week. Yes. Yeah, 400. They have presented yeah. closer yeah. to 500, yeah. probably less than that. But that mm -hmm. means that there is an intention, there is a possibility for growth. Now we're looking into the future and we are looking at the uh, presentation of the aircraft in 2029. 
So we have quite a few years to go to see how this technology develops. And we're absolutely confident that the technology in the battery density will be there in order to fulfill those particular uh, characteristics of uh, operators in, in our uh, market. I have one question about uh, batteries. It's about how batteries uh, respond to uh, the sort of uh, salty environment that these aircraft operate in. I don't know mm -hmm. if the, the sea salt can be an issue in terms of corrosion when it comes to the batteries, the same way that you mentioned uh, the issues with maintenance for uh, uh, metal parts in a maritime environment when, when these aircraft operate in seawater. And I think that's actually one of the main issues as well that operators face is the maintenance cost when they operate in seawater. We had a, quite a long time ago here uh, a seaplane entrepreneur in Florida that gave us some numbers. I don't remember them exactly, but every time the plane touches the water, the seawater, it, it requires a huge amount of maintenance just for the very fact that being a few minutes in the water. How does it apply to batteries? And you mentioned, I think, you are working with materials that kind of overcome this issue. What, what else can you mm -hmm. tell us about how you plan to solve this? Well, uh, first of all, of course, uh, a direct contact of the battery with sealed water will be catastrophic. And that is why you engulf uh, the battery in a special uh, closed uh, compartments and make sure there is no water uh, water getting inside. Of course, it will be catastrophic in a way that there will be some degradation and uh, you probably battery will need to be changed. But again, this is very easily overcome by during the des design stage where you place your batteries in the specific compartments that uh, do not uh, allow for the water to be penetrated and touch the, the batteries. You're absolutely right that all modern uh, seaplanes that are out there are made of metal, and it would, it requires an average between four to six hours a day to clean those from the salt water because of the possibility of rust and um, degradation of, of that metal part. Uh, well, here the solution is very simple. Don't use the metal. So that's why we designed the aircraft fully out of the composite materials, which uh, are not afraid of uh, salt water or seawater. Additional element to this is that all the modern uh, or current aircraft uh, seaplanes are using conventional engines with open engines and there's a, a chance of the source salt water seawater get inside those engines so that those engines also require additional cleaning but once we're moving to the electric motors and therefore everything you have outside is a propeller made of either composite or wood and a governor and the rest is encompassed in a box, in a controller box, and behind the, the carpets and behind the, the fuselage, you have no chance to receive any seawater on those uh, parts, and therefore there's no risk of any degradation on, and doesn't require any additional maintenance. And where are you now with this design process? Where is the project at the moment in terms of development? Have you already started work on a prototype? What's the time frame that you have in mind? for certification and then enter into service? Well, it's a bit uh, too early to talk about the prototype. We're about uh, six years away from, from the first delivery as per plan. We're about uh, four years away from starting uh, presenting prototyping for the certification process processes. Of course, certification is not only the work on the prototype by the EASA regulator or FAA regulator, but it's also a lot of documentary work. 
we are now in uh, we've just completed the conceptualization stage what is the conceptualization stage is where we know what we're building we know what parameters we're looking for we know what are the markets that we're looking at therefore what are the specific tasks that this aircraft should uh, perform we're looking who we're going to work with in terms of supplying because half of the manufacturing is working with the supplier as an aircraft oem we're not willing to reinvent the wheel or start doing, building our own engines or propellers. No, our job is to design the best aircraft possible and work with uh, uh, leading world suppliers for these respective parts in order to assemble the best aircraft we can. That's why we have teamed up with Honeywell to design uh, and to use their control systems and their avionics in our aircraft and to work together on the capability of this aircraft for automatic takeoff landing on water, which nobody's ever done before. And I think together with Honeywell, we're able to achieve it. And uh, another thing is to create HMI system for the water taxi. What is that? It's a human, human machine interface. Okay. So it's how do you work as a pilot? How do you work with the avionics in front of you and how the uh, machine itself through automatic uh, navigation underwater can help you as a pilot, uh, whether it's to dock the aircraft or to get out of the off the dock in the aircraft or in certain geographical areas, whether it's a bay or river, providing the best possible information to the pilot to make the best decision during the taxi underwater. Mm -hmm. Because one aspect I've seen of your, of the renderings you have on your website is that the Jecta aircraft is going to be resting on the water. So the hull is directly in contact with the yes, water instead of, instead of resting on, on some floats or, or some, other, some other system. What is the advantage of this type of approach? In the 1930s, like the, I think the Panam Clippers and these very large uh, seaplanes, they, they were also resting completely on the water. Well, absolutely. Well, when we're talking about the seaplanes, we're talking about we need to divide seaplanes in two different categories. First is the land-based aircraft uh, that is adapted to be operated on water by installation of the floaters. By doing so, the aircraft obviously gains additional weight, therefore reducing the payload uh, versus the land version of the same aircraft. It also decreases the aerodynamics of the aircraft resulting in slower speed and increased fuel consumption. And actually all currency operators uh, around the world are using land-based converted aircraft with floaters, be it twin orders or caravan or others, simply due to the lack of current alternatives. Now, these aircraft are not designed to be used in water. They're simply adapted to do uh, to it. Therefore, they're, they're, addition, they're initially made out of metal. They're initially made of certain um, aircraft design solutions that are simply not the best if you use it on the water. Now, the other seaplanes, as you correctly mentioned, is the flying boat design, meaning that the bottom part of the hull is reinforced, as this is the surface of contact with the water. And such design provides for much wider operation, operational parameters, um, as it is able to cut a larger wave um, and therefore can be operated in rough conditions and bad weather. In our case, sorry, how rough? How, because I know well, the traditional, well, traditional, like the these amphibious aircraft you mentioned, they're pretty limited in what they can do when there's just a little bit of crispy water, just a bit of a bit of wind, a bit of wave, not too high. It's already a no-no for those aircraft. So 
Absolutely. What's the difference in your right. case? Well, in our case, we want we're we're planning to build an aircraft that will allow for operations up with a wave height up to 1.2 meters, which providing for the possibility to use it in open ocean. Yeah, it's pretty big, one one point two meters. So. Of course, the downside of that that the reinforcement of the hull means additional weight of the aircraft. Mm-hmm. On the positive side, the additional reinforcement of the hull provides for additional safety as uh, in case of emergency you can either look for body water to land but more you can try to land on the hull itself Mm -hmm. and as a reinforced hull it provides for that possibility and uh, these are two very strict differentiations between the land-based aircraft that is adapted to water and a seaplane of Mm -hmm. a flying boat design now i'd like to say that Flying boat design is a, a truly amphibious aircraft because most of the land-based aircraft with floaters, not all, but most of it, cannot be used on land unless you take off those floaters. So once you convert it, first of all, those floaters are additional cost. They are from 30 third-party manufacturers. They're quite expensive. The usual permission of the wave height if you ever see a floater aircraft as you take the height of the floater and half of it is the is the usual permitted wave height with a very experienced pilot because as you understand uh, once the wave gets up and down your aircraft which is sitting above the floaters starts to move in this lateral kind of movement and there's a possibility of getting a nose dive into the water okay of course dangerous yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, now, those floaters, once you install them on this land-based aircraft, has to be taken off if you want to fly land-to-land. Not all of them, but most of them. And this provides for additional costs, for additional time lost, and not actually create a truly amphibious aircraft. Now, the Phase 100 is an aircraft that is designed to penetrate and expand the regional air mobility market, talking about the niche itself. And being a truly amphibious aircraft, it allows for our customers to operate the aircraft both on land or water or combination of both of the two without any additional investment or any additional work. It also provides for possibility to homogenize the fleet of the operator that is willing to have both land and water operations. So one aircraft can fly to the water base and another aircraft can fly to a different airport and then if one of them is AOG, you simply take the other one and he performs the same routes. Um, today, the water operations are mostly in um, the so-called developed countries, Canada, some parts of North America and Caribbean, Europe, and several island chains such as the Maldives and the Seychelles. And this we consider as an existing markets. Uh, but we want to look beyond that. Uh, the regional air mobility will expand to the developing countries and new markets are already emerging today, expanding the regional travel. And these are include India, Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines, Africa, and South America. A lot of these emerging markets are either unwilling to invest in regional airport infrastructure, uh, such as India, due to high financial costs and uh, irreversible um, ecological impact, while others like uh, Indonesia are unable to do so due to the scarcity of the landmass. 
So we also see new water bases emerging in Europe, for example, due, due to extreme high cost of land. Um, and all of this pushes local governments to look into alternatives for the regional, regional transport of goods and passengers uh, using water. And a good example of this is um, a SWAN program in Italy. And I don't know if you heard about it. So, so SWAN 1 was just recently completed. Its aim was to harmonize the regulations of several countries on the Adriatic Sea. And now comes the SWAN 2 program, which is to build 15 water bases connecting Italy, Croatia, Albania, and Montenegro, uh, with the first water boys being in Gallipoli in process of being built right now. To and the SWAN stands for Sustainable uh, Water Air Network. So okay. it's, it's, it's really uh, using the water and connecting all those countries and creating a regional uh, mobility for the passengers and the goods to travel around the Adriatic Sea. But again, our aircraft or any amphibious flying boat design aircraft are not focused only on water operations. It doesn't require anything additional to be flown on land routes and can be perfectly operated from airport to airport. And mm -hmm. certainly that, that also provides for possibility to bring passengers from and to international airports from water, be it in Dubai or in Jakarta. And that makes phase 100 an aircraft with what we call a multiple operational possibilities. With one aircraft, you can do all three, land to land, water to water, land to water, whatever is required at that time or at that geographical area where you operate. And how does it compare in terms of operational cost to the existing alternatives? Well, that's a good question. That's, that is exactly uh, our aim, because as you very well know, and as a lot of um, guests on this show before me mentioned, the electrification of aviation is specifically targeting the redu the reducement of the costs, uh, running operating running costs and the maintenance costs. And this is the goal here. And this is why the regional aviation was unable to expand into the developing countries because the local population is unable to purchase uh, flight tickets at $300, $400 a, a seat. But once you reduce those operational maintenance costs, whether it's through the design, using uh, new materials, using electric engines, using the batteries, suddenly the, the operator is able to reduce those tickets, prices, and offer for the passengers or the cargo companies uh, completely uh, other uh, possibilities in terms of pricing. And now suddenly we arrive to a situation where hundreds of millions of people in India and tens of millions of people in Southeast Asia and South America are able to purchase those tickets and able to uh, use the services of regional air mobility because of those uh, particular costs on, on prices. The operational costs through electrification and through using uh, modern composite materials and therefore decreasing the running costs, operational costs and the maintenance costs is the main target here. Because by decreasing those costs, we are, have the possibility to uh, expand the regional air mobility in the developing markets where the population is unable to pay the tickets uh, using the current possibility for the seaplane markets, uh, for the seaplane operators, for the seaplane aircraft. Um, but once we decrease those costs, suddenly we have uh, hundreds of millions of people around the world that are able to uh, purchase the tickets and to fly, whether it's 40 minutes or 50 minutes or one hour for, for another state or another city or visit their 
their relatives in another another island, for example. Have you quantified? And only due... Yeah, sorry. Have you quantified how many aircraft are we talking about potentially? Yes, we are talking about the need, the current need of 2023 of about 400 aircraft for the seaplane operations only around the world. That would be to replace existing, based on the existing um, aircraft, or also taking into account this potential new induced demand from a lower cost? This is only what is required today is an additional uh, aircraft to the existing ones. Okay. Now there is a there is a little a, uh, about a thousand seaplanes around the world of different uh, kinds in commercial operations, and I like to mention Trans-Maldivian aircraft. That's sixty twin others, only one operator. Um, so those we do not take in consideration. We're talking about there's a need for about four hundred more, and this will only grow as the Southeast Asia uh, wealth increases. They simply don't have any possibility other than use seaplanes to uh, to fly uh, around regionally. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't like focusing only on the water operations. I believe that this aircraft is able to compete with other uh, players in regional mobility, the likes of Aviations or Viridian or others uh, in, in operating uh, land-to-land uh, routes as well. Okay. Being a 19-seat aircraft also has advantages for the operator because every operator wants to have as many passengers as possible in order to maximize their profits. Like cargo as well? Or cargo as well. And we learned it the hard way, uh, manufacturing an eight-seater, so six passengers. And uh, a lot of operators just came and said, well, this is too small. The economics are more difficult. So it's actually the bigger you go, the better economics are there for the operator. Considering the high costs, especially high entry costs. Um, and this this really is a, a changer for the operator. But as we want to stay in part 23, and we don't want to go too big by eliminating the possibility of using this aircraft in tight areas, such as the Amazon River or bays, we want to limit ourselves to 19 passengers. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that we should speak about is the difference between the urban air mobility and the regional air mobility. And regional yeah. air mobility will be much bigger. Um, I had the pleasure to be at the presentation of um, Daryl Swanson of the EA Maven at the Revolution IRO just two weeks ago. And uh, there's some absolutely striking numbers about the possibilities in regional air mobility versus the urban air mobility. So when we talk about urban air mobility, we're talking about EVTOLs and variations of EVTOLs. And I guess that's including helicopters. The possibility of region air, regional air mobility through the electrification and through the decrease of the pro- those prices is suddenly allowing for not only competition with uh, with other operators, but actually competition with other means of transport, such as train and such as the car itself. Mm-hmm. Now, with the increased taxation on cars, with a lack of infrastructure, or train infrastructure in some countries, Regional air mobility is going to grow exponentially. And we're talking about, I think, about 250 million travelers annually on the mm-hmm. regional air mobility. And that is a huge, huge number. And this is why we're building this aircraft to encompass all kinds of market. And this is why we focus on building water and land aircraft so it can 
apply and be applicable in different countries and different markets. Whether you're going, as I mentioned, in, in, in the Philippines from, from island to island, or you simply fly uh, from Iverness to Aberdeen or from London to Cardiff or from Miami to Fort Lauderdale. And that would be the same version, the same, exactly the same. Would be exactly the same version with no changes at all. Mm -hmm. We believe this is a big advantage because, A, it allows us as a manufacturer to expand our possibility of the market. But as an, any operator looking that there's 500 or 1,000 of these aircraft around the world, that means at the end that there's a decrease in pricing for uh, parts. There's an increase in technicians, in service bases around the world, pilots, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So while expanding and homogenizing the, this particular regional air mobility market with one aircraft, we're actually giving a direct benefit to the operator. Mm -hmm. Understood. There is another thing I wanted to comment on. Um, designing, developing an aircraft from scratch, getting it certified and getting it to the market costs a lot of money. You're a startup. Have you received VC capital venture funds? You have private investors. What, what's the actual, let's say, financial setup of, of mm -hmm. your project? Well, luckily, we, as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, we've been uh, designing, developing amphibian aircraft flying boats for 20 years. We have our own financial capabilities. We already have the team that has been working on uh, a lot of flying boat designs, and we're using the same key people. So up to now, uh, we have been, uh, the founders have been uh, financing this project ourselves, uh, using, again, the same team that's been working with us for, for many, many, many years. Um, and simply from, from this month on, uh, we are opening uh, our series of funding, which... I believe it's called the Series A right now. And uh, we start the process of uh, uh, looking for the investors and um, for uh, financial companies, whether it's VCs or private uh, equity or any other uh, interested parties that are interested in investing in, uh, in Jekta. So if there are any investors listening, there you go. You have, <laughs> you have here an interesting project to, to invest in. What's next? You currently are based in Switzerland in something called the Swiss Aeropole, which is a sort of hub for different Swiss startups. Actually, we had some previously here on this podcast, some, some interesting startups from Switzerland, like H55, which is a, a company also active in the field of electric aviation. What are the perspectives in terms of, uh, let's say, the, 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 the physical part of the venture, uh, building stuff, making stuff? I mean, you mentioned you already designing aircraft, so I guess you already have some sort of facility where you are basically working on this from, a, let's say, from a manufacturing point of view. You're absolutely right in the fact that you, I think you had two guests from Switzerland before. One is the H55. We know them very well. They're developing and they've already certified, I know, very uh, a battery for uh, for aircraft. Yeah, and led, aircraft. and led by a very, let's say, iconic aviator, which is André Borschberg, which was with André Picard right. in that famous tour around the world in a in a solar aircraft a few years ago. So, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I had the privilege to know both of them and uh, I have a privilege to, to know very well uh, André and his partners in H55 and mm -hmm. we in continuous conversation and the possibility of using their technology. 
Um, this is one of the advantages being in Switzerland. Another one is a good neighbor of us, Mikhail from Destinus. True, he is yes. in the same techno park. Um, we are, uh, Ajecta is a, is a Swiss OEM. We were uh, registered in 2021 with the aim of designing and manufacturing aircraft. And the first project being the phase 100 amphibious uh, aircraft. We're situated in Swiss Aeropole airspace cluster, uh, which is an airport uh, of Bayern uh, in Canton Vaux in Switzerland. It's actually one of the fastest growing techno parts in, in the country in one of the most dynamic and uh, innov innovative uh, parts of Switzerland. And besides having access to one of the longest runways of 2.8 kilometers, uh, we're also able to cooperate with various companies in the cluster, whether it be legal or certification or other purposes. Also, Solar Stratos is there with us. So we have a lot of, uh, and as I mentioned, Mikhail with, uh, with their hypersonic uh, program. So we have a lot of uh, very interesting and very innovative companies around us with whom we're able to share ideas and, and, and share this uh, fantastic uh, techno park uh, with, with really uh, fantastic possibilities and fantastic benefits for all the companies. And this is one of the advantages being in Switzerland. Uh, as you might know, the first electric aircraft was flown in Switzerland. Okay, didn't know that. The, the, the Pipistrel. Um, I am, true. Yes. Actually, we had, we had also, uh, now that you mentioned recently in the podcast, he's been twice on the podcast, actually, Morel Westerman, uh, who is based in Switzerland as well. And he is a pioneer of electric aviation as well in flying aircraft. In his case, he's been one of the, I think, very early pilots of the Pipistrel Valley's Electro, and he's been setting up some records, uh, distance records with, with this aircraft uh, in the recent past as well. Well, the reason for that is that the local regulator, the FOCA in Bern, are uh, very acceptable to electrification of aviation. They're working in dialogue with a lot of manufacturers on the promotion of electric, electric aviation. In fact, here in Switzerland, we have a lot of those electric pipistrels in, in, in flight cups and, uh, and uh, academies for, for PPL licenses. So if you ever want to fly that uh, pipistrel, you can always find it in Switzerland. And this is one of the advantages to be here, is that we can have a direct dialogue with FOCA. They're at the edge of the innovation in terms of regulations and in terms of electrification of aviation. And of course, FOCA is a part of EASA. So... So at one hand, you have all the advantages uh, and little disadvantages being here in Switzerland. And of course, additionally, we're able to cooperate with a lot of uh, university, uh, very famous technological universities with a lot of brilliant ideas, brilliant uh, teachers and students and brilliant laboratories. So if there's anything that uh, comes up and we don't know the answer to, we can always uh, go to these universities such as the was on Polytechnical School, Zurich Polytechnical School, Chatel and the others, and have direct access to the brightest and youngest minds in, in, in engineering. This is another advantage that we have. Of course, uh, being in Switzerland, uh, we have the possibility to uh, build a product that is made in Switzerland, which always, first of all, sets a very high bar for us, of that it has to be the product of the utmost quality, this is our full intention to, to do. Um, but of course, it provides additional benefit for, for our shareholders at the end of the day. So being in Switzerland also is a big advantage because we're, as a neutral country, we're able to 
work with Japanese, with American, with all different countries. And uh, this is also very advantageous for us. And um, we believe this is the best solution is to make a final assembly of the aircraft here. But as I mentioned at the beginning, it's very important to have a very robust uh, and, and a very extensive uh, network of suppliers of utmost quality from the biggest brands and uh, the most renowned suppliers in the world uh, that therefore we can assure the quality of the parts and the components that are coming into Switzerland. And this is actually the half of, half of the job of any manufacturer is the quality control and work with your suppliers. Mm -hmm. And we're able to do that. And for people that wish to learn more, to follow this project as it evolves over time, which resources would you suggest? Could you please remind us now of your website or any other social channels you, you might have out there for people to check more information about the Jecta Amphibious Electric Airplane? Well, of course, uh, everybody can uh, visit us at the website www.jecta.com. That's Juliet Echo Kilo Tango Alpha dot Swiss and follow us on uh, LinkedIn as Jekta Aircraft and look out for our press releases in uh, in all the mainstream uh, airplane um, and aircraft publications. Excellent. And of course, those sorry to interrupt. Of course, those that are visiting eBay's uh, in our home country of Switzerland are always uh, open to seek me out and and talk to me directly. I'm going to be one of those people visiting eBay's. <laughs> so hope to see you soon in, in person and be able to, to continue this conversation there. Well, in the meantime, thank you so much and all thank the you. best with the project. Before you go, and if you like this podcast, a quick reminder that it would be absolutely great if you could please give it a rating on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you're using, or recommend it to a friend or whomever might be interested. Thank you very much and see you soon.